You're listening to the School of Movies podcast, episode 134, originally recorded 27th of April 2014, Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Welcome to School of Movies. Using all the magic at his command, Walt Disney brings you his wondrous all-cartoon feature, Cinderella. Sparkling with pure enchantment, filled with lasting enjoyment, and overflowing with unforgettable entertainment. The thing in the pop that does the job is bibbidi bobbidi boo Oh, Sonic and Girl, a There's also the fun of fascinating and humorous Disney characters who bring to life Cinderella's exciting story. Meet Jacques, Gus Gus, and Lucifer. And there's the magic of music in some of the happiest melodies ever heard. Is a wish your heart When you watch Disney documentaries and promotional materials, the tendency is to spout hyperbole about the magic that the final results constitute. The legend within our hearts. The remit of these podcasts is to look at the output of Disney Studios in the manner that cuts out the non-discerning gushing and focuses on the hard work that went into them, the conflict that no one ever really talks about, the stories that they tell and the characters that they depict and how they really stand up today. So when we gush you know it comes from the heart. So, we'll start strong with Cinderella. Dan, what do you like about this movie? I actually like a lot about Cinderella. Now, I expected watching it that I was going to be kind of have a middling opinion of it. I didn't remember it. I didn't remember loving it as much as a kid. But looking at it now, maybe it's just that I'd been watching five or six package films in a row I'm sorry, is my cat talking? <laughs> he is. Ava M. DeLacy, G. Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley. O'Malley the alley cat. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I just so didn't wait, know. When was the last time you actually really acquainted yourself with this one? Uh, I mean, like a lot of these kind of classic Disney films, I don't think I've seen them since I was probably in grade school maybe college at some point but it's definitely been a while for a lot of these and uh i didn't know exactly what to expect but again maybe it is just that i'd been watching a bunch of package films before this but yeah this movie looks amazing after you've been watching those shorts like the character animation is such it's so far beyond what they've been doing the last 10 years the background art is amazing it feels like the studio had been kind of building up, like, desperately wanting to make a movie of this quality for 
a decade and finally was able to and just kind of opened up <laughs> just like just completely opened it up all the way and unleashed their full ability on this movie. score and the songs are all great i actually like cinderella as a character a lot more than i expected to Mm -hmm. i have very little actually bad to say about this movie you can leave that all to us there you go okay i will (laughs) i don't know actually don't i don't fear folks we're not gonna rip this one a new one i think it probably um i don't know maybe i'll turn this one over to sharon first because uh you had you were kind of up and down in fact no I, i know you have very specific reasons why what about this surprised you and what appealed to you so yeah go for it yeah absolutely and i mean to be honest with you it was kind of summed up when we were watching some of the background um documentaries um i i remembered cinderella as being one i wasn't that keen on Mm. um and specifically um that it plays into the whole trope of um the princess in waiting very strongly this this notion that um because it, it they talk about the the cinderella story being like this rags to riches um uh, parallel with um the american dream and and sort of uh. waltz rise to from being this a paper boy um and a, a kid who worked on a farm that waltz was a cinderella story exactly that that he then you know rose to become this incredibly um wealthy and and well-respected Uh, studio owner but that's not the same thing because what cinderella as a story is basically saying is that if your life is all hardship and chores what you should actually do is wait take the hardship do the chores and one day a prince will come along and marry you and everything will be marvelous Um, and that was kind of what i was all set up to to dislike about the film Mm -hmm. and then we watched it and i thought there's actually a lot more to this um, than than I remember there being, or certainly that I have attributed to the Cinderella story, because that's there. That idea of of you know the the hard luck girl who kind of gets plucked out of a miserable existence and and placed into this highest position in the land type thing, and and obviously that's where a lot of the the princess um, trope and and um, uh, plot line stems from, but the way they've built her character up in layers is actually quite interesting because she's, she's not um, totally passive, um, you know, takes all her punishment with a smile on her face. That's Snow White. That's what Snow White does. Um, totally naive about her situation. Uh, no understanding of how she can change it. Cinderella is more grown up than that. She's more aware than that. She has uh, acquired friends um by being kind to the animals around her um and um you know providing them with clothes and food and in return they don't just give her companionship which snow white's woodland friends basically come and sing to her and yes they help her tidy up the um uh, the dwarf's cottage but 
Cinderella's animal friends actually provide her with practical help when it's required all the way through the film. And they save her ass at the end. Exactly, yeah. And and that's all something that stemmed from uh, an exchange of services and assistance. She's helped them, and therefore they help her. Um, she's also... Um, she has all these sort of little sly expressions when the the stepmother and the um, the sisters are being cruel to her. You know, she she bows her head at the appropriate times and she makes out like she's not really um, uh, thinking of being impertinent to them or anything like that. But when they're out of the way, she sings, she dances. You know, she she makes something of the existence that they allow her to have, yeah. um, but in a way that's that's kind of it's really difficult to put my finger on but just something about the way she speaks the way she acts just makes me feel like she's not she doesn't allow her spirit to be broken exactly but in a conscious way Mm. not just in a she's too stupid to know what's going on kind of way no no it feels like there's a very it's not coming off well in this is she (laughs) she's not no (laughs) that does feel like cinderella has a very carefully guarded disdain for these people that she's Mm. stuck serving and you can see it just kind of in her expressions and like you said in her very carefully chosen words and carefully timed little bows and there are moments she could pretty much turn to the camera as if to say get a lot of these guys yeah Yeah. she's she's almost sarcastic occasionally which Mm. you don't expect from a disney character Mm. Yeah, I love that the one line where she, the one line where she says, "I have to go up and interrupt the uh, music lesson," <laughs> as as she hears her sisters upstairs singing horribly. The pear-shaped toes sing sweet nightingale, sing sweet nightingale. But she's very gracious and diplomatic about it, so I suppose she is kind of a queen in waiting. She's she's got a lot of personality, and really, it. And you're right; it doesn't feel like this goodness and this respect she's giving these she's giving to these people is coming from being dumb or too stupid to know the horrible situation she's in. It really comes off more as just superhuman patience. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the thing that really tripped it for me, that really made me think, actually, yeah, I, I do quite like her as a character for the, the level of, of storytelling that we're at at the moment, um, is the dress, is the fact that um, it's not just she wants to go to the ball so the fairy godmother turns up and waves a wand and magically makes everything happen for her. She's tried. She's 
tried to do it herself. She's negotiated being allowed to go. The stepmother said, yes, here's this big long list of chores. And if you get them all done, then yes, you can go to the ball. And she does them. And she's, um, the, the mice have helped her. And she, you know, but she had an idea of the dress she was going to wear. She'd sorted something out. It was all set up. She'd done that all off her own back. It's just the fact that it all got pulled out from underneath her at the last minute. Mm. And that almost kind of... It, not so much that it's it's karma that horrible things have happened to her and therefore the magic will come along and make everything all right again but just the fact that she's worked to earn that reward with the child's sense of justice that a lot of the disney audience would have she must get that reward she she there needs to be a way that she can have what she's worked so hard <coughs> for so it kind of seems um not magical and wonderful and dreamlike and amazing and this will solve all of your problems with a wave of my magic wand but just fair that the godmother turns up and um and mm. organizes the coach. rebalancing the otherwise exactly uh, the, the odds are so stacked against her yeah by eleanor audley as lady tremaine one of the absolute shining stars of this film horrible thankless task because everyone hates her as a character uh, but she presents a, a a genuinely insidious antagonist um, for the first time in, in a, a, I'm racking my brains, for somebody who's quite this mean-spirited and uh, seems to, to to revel in in, in sadistic little uh, orders, but done in a... She's kind of the proto-Gothel, or Mother Gothel comes say, Gothel, from yes. her. Someone who's in that position of caring authority mm. and misuses it so horrendously. Yeah. She has yellow eyes. I swear, yellow eyes. And like the first time you meet her, uh, you, you come into the, the, the bedroom and you can just see her eyes and Lucifer's eyes, the cat, in the darkness, both like one above the other. There's a glaring out of the shadows. She's conducting her discussion with Cinderella in a, uh, a, a civilized manner. But then you get who she really is with, uh, you know, a da -da 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 -da. clean it and the tapestries, and the draperies, and I'll have you doing this for the rest of your life. Oh, Lucifer, won't you ever learn? Cinderella? Yes, stepmother. <laughs> Are you gonna get it? Close the door, Cinderella. Please, you don't think that Hold I... Hold your tongue. To... Now. <laughs> it seems we have time on our hands. But I was only trying to... Silence! Time for vicious, practical jokes. Perhaps we can put it to better use. Now, let me see. There's the large carpet in the main hall. Clean it. And the windows upstairs and down. Watch them. Oh, yes. And the tapestries and the draperies. But I just finished... Do them again. And don't forget the garden. Then scrub the terrace, sweep the halls and the stairs, clean the chimneys. And, of course, there's the mending and the sewing and the laundry. Oh, yes. And one more thing. Oh. 
See that Lucifer gets his bath. Here's a theory. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a Jungian interpretation for a start. Uh, given that cats often represent uh, female sexuality, Lucifer, who is named after the devil, mm-hmm. is the stepmother's repressed womanhood that nice. she is taking out on Cinderella. And far more juvenile. And Lucifer is very impulsive and doesn't hold back on anything. Lucifer just does whatever he wants. In fact, Lucifer is never happier or more energetic than when he has an opportunity to ruin somebody's day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He does it. <laughs> yeah. Again, he's sadistic, just like Tremaine. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's almost like the, the, the stepsisters. I think it's, it's bopping down as to whether they're the ugly sisters. I heard someone on the, uh, the making of calling them the evil stepsisters. I think that's a bit harsh. They're just utterly selfish and clueless. When it comes down to it, they represent uh, minor threats in comparison to the Lady Tremaine who appears to be trying to destroy her, using her own children as tools to do that. The, and that's this, epitomized when they shred the dress. Yeah, she's, she's basically, no, 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 I'm a woman of my word. Oh, but look. And then manages to somehow still destroy this girl. She just hits the release the hounds button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However, problems arise when Cinderella gets to the ball. For me, at least. It's, well, I mean, it's not exactly like I've been captivated the whole way through. The Tom and Jerry stuff with the mice is kind of amusing. With, with the challenge of the stepmother is uh, is a visceral part of the film. And the, the, the sing sweet nightingale stuff with the bubbles is, is quite lovely to watch. But I'm not exactly thrilled to watch this one. Um, but when she gets to the ball... So this is love... So this is love. So this is what makes life I'm all aglow. And now I know. And now I know. The key to heaven is mine. First guy she meets is the prince. They hardly exchange two words. They dance around for a bit, then she runs away. And then the the king sends his nine ring waves after her. It's the most <laughs> heavy-handed way of, of getting her back. And it's genuinely threatening. And I think they overshot, stepped the mark on that in, in terms of... Uh, it, this is not a family I kind of want this girl to be um, uh, brought under the wing of. Uh, it's it's almost like she needs to be free of both of these. Now, it could simply be that Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes version of Cinderella has stuck itself in my head, so I kind of figure that the prince will go around chopping off the heads of everyone who displeases him. Um, but he's, he takes so little part in the story. He's the trophy, effectively. But it really wasn't until Sleeping Beauty, I think, that even one of the princes got a name. Hmm. Well, no, he's called Prince Charming in this, but they hardly even... Do they Who say calls it out their line? son Charming? Is, is that a name or is that a title? I don't... <laughs> it, it, it's, it's billed as Prince Charming, but All I right. think that... I don't know. He's, he's, just, he's in nothing. I thought it was like Lady Fair, Prince yeah. Charming. He's, he's a notch above that girly singing one in uh, the first... Uh, in Snow White. Yeah. With his... Oh, <laughs> that guy. But... Um, he certainly doesn't have a character arc like Pinocchio or Dumbo does. But, I mean, we're... <sighs> We're at Tangled level now, so we've got, like, Flynn Rider as our male uh, male antagonist. He kind of is, actually, now that I think about it. He makes things happen. Uh, But as our male hero, 
charming is a nothing, a nobody. And, and I think just the whole Cinderella getting into that side of things, kind of the, the end of this film deflates. The thing I like is the, the uh, switcheroo with the uh, glass slipper where it smashes. And like, I can imagine audiences in the 50s of little kids going, oh, no. And then Cinderella brings out the other uh, slipper, which, by the way, when everything else turns into just pumpkins and mice again, the slipper remains. Why? I mean, there's no physics to this magic. It just remains because it had to. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's from the magic that forgets about slippers. (laughs) (laughs) I I am inclined to agree with you in terms of the, the, what I really don't like about this film is the non-entity that is the prince. Mm. Um, It's, there is a little shred of them trying to give him some character by having his father wax lyrical about how irritating it is that he won't marry mm. um, and that, you know, he's he's refusing all of these girls that are being placed in front of him and he's, you know, holding out for his one true love. Um, but again, for me, that emphasizes the the part of fairy tales that I don't like, which is that these two get together because fate says they have to, because they are destined for one another. There is no, you, you don't, you see them dance off behind the curtain. What you don't get is what you do have entangled, which is they have a conversation. They find out they have things in common. She doesn't know he's the prince at that point. You could quite easily spare us a conversation in which we get to find out that he's quite a nice chap and she likes him. <laughs> you know, it's funny how we right. finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, you know, he, he barely speaks. His interaction is minimal and he, he, you know, literally might as well just be a trophy. It sounds like I'm nitpicking, and I am really. This is this is <laughs> no, not really a on, film for a 33 like year old man. That's fair. 50% that's fair. Of the film. But yeah, okay. Um, but it doesn't really matter because this film blew Disney up to monumental standards and allowed them to make Disneyland and allowed them to come back with a bang. This was the film for the moment. This was huge, and they absolutely had to make it. So whether I like it or not is neither here nor there. Yeah, ultimately it's important because oh, yeah, the, yeah. the studio was four million in the hole mm. going into this film. If this How one did not make money, money, yeah, then there would not be another one. That this would have been it. Now, it said that it made 85 million. I don't know how that, I think that's probably over time with the re releases. Probably, probably, yeah. Maybe adjusted for inflation. But, um, but yeah, that their margins were pretty low and uh, they cost 2.9 million. And they were preparing this for a long time while putting out the packages. It was kind of like they were limping along and, and it was totally worth it and a very shrewd decision. And so it was probably, it was, yeah, this is the second most important Disney film after Snow White in terms of getting them to where they needed to go so far. Maybe it's just me. Does Lady Tremaine at all feel like sort of a weird ancestor to Mallory Archer? Maybe it's just I've been watching Archie too much. Oh, God, yes. But like, now her- you've said that. Thank you, Dan. The secret is negative reinforcement. I'm uh, just getting that. About time. Ass. Her so voice, her here, delivery, the be. attitude, everything about it. Like, just put some alcohol in her hand Swinging and give her... Gin. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then that completes it. It's the passive aggressiveness that does it. She's deadly yeah. like that. Uh, I heard uh, the uh, the earlier films described as, as a golden age. I don't know. I mean, this was on one of the Disney uh, making ofs. 
it's it wasn't a golden age. Snow White made a huge amount of money, and then Dumbo made a surprising amount because it was really cheap. The rest of them failed. How yeah, is that a golden I, age? At the time, it probably been. wouldn't have been regarded as one. It's probably kind of one of those, in retrospect, these are all very well-crafted and regarded as classics, yeah, the, yeah, and it beautiful. started this whole thing, so... Yeah, so golden now age it's a golden age retrospectively, but yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know, it, it, it does a terrible disservice to these films we're covering now because there's so many of them are huge triumphs, and yet it's like, oh, these are the lesser Disney's, not like Bambi. What's very likely though is you look at how, say, for example, the Marvel comics are defined in terms of golden age and silver age. When I look at, at what gets grouped into those categories, it's purely in terms of age. Mm. It's, it's just the oldest ones are Golden Age, the newer ones are Silver Age, and it just all I can think is Golden Anniversary and Silver Anniversary. It's just well, an age thing. In comic terms, it makes it's different, because back in the Golden Age, that was when they made all their money, because there was nothing else to do apart from go to Nickelodeons. Uh, and then in the Silver Age, there was more things to do, and they still made money. And then afterwards, there were, the more things there are to do, the less money gets spent on comics. Well, maybe they're thinking about it in terms of, you know, these were the days when we were creating what was genuinely art. They, they mm. were all hand-drawn. They, they were all the product of artistic individuals who were creating uh, very, very beautiful imagery. And That's I know- garbage. What, so the, so the, the Phantom is, is of a higher rank in artistic terms than Sandman. Utter bit. Uh, no, no, sorry, not the Golden Age Sandman, Neil Gaiman Sandman. Um, it, no, no, no. I'm, I hate that. It is it is elitism from old men who I'm go, talking, oh, it, it was the Golden Age way back then. It's all about the money these days. I'm talking about the Disney interpretation. Oh, right, I see, I see. So. But no, I mean, well, you, that implies. I mean, somebody else on on the um, on the Sleeping Beauty um, DVD said, oh, it was uh, the the craftsmanship and artistic. Uh, it was just a, a feat which we'll never see again. Sorry, tangled right there. The, the, the craftsmanship and artistry and the absolutely beautiful, luminous, a perfect parallel in the modern day of, of Sleeping Beauty. But then when that statement was made, the last movie that Disney had produced was Bolt. So I think this guy was just despairing. What has become this, of my company? If, if you're looking back at a time when your studio was on the rise, uh, when everything that you did was at least critically considered to be magnificent and wonderful, and at the moment you're turfing out 3D animated... Animal features. ...non-entities, then you can see how they might look back on that and define that as their golden age. But it's such... that's, that's, That's pissing on Walt's dream. That's saying, oh, we'll never do that again. We'll never be artistic again. Well, it is a bit. We'll, but I mean, we'll never see the like of... I mean, somebody said in Walt Disney's eulogy, we will never see his like again. Surely he would want the world to see his like again. You would think. But there are people who refer to the golden age of Britain and the United Kingdom as being <laughs> the, the colonial Empire. times when the we were The point at which we were being India. the most horrible to yeah. as many people in the world as we possibly could. Let's move on. We've got a lot of movies to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Salagadoola, metrigaboola, Put them together and what have you got? Bibbidi bobbidi boo. Salagadoola, mentrigaboola, bibbidi bobbidi boo. It'll do magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi bobbidi boo. Now, salagadoola means a mentrigaboola moo. But
turns out the new live-action Cinderella movie is surprisingly remarkably good, correcting many of the issues we've just broached upon. We won't review it here because we'd end up slaloming back and forwards in time so you'd get all the progressive moves before sliding back to the 1950s next week. Because this series doubles, let's not forget, as both a history of animation in the 20th century and the perception of the princess. But rest assured, we'll be mentioning Cinderella 2015 again in due course. Next up, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. 
Step into an exciting, colorful, wonderfully new world as Walt Disney brings to glowing life the adventures of Alice in Wonderland, based on Lewis Carroll's beloved story. There are wonderful tunes for your heart, wonderful thrills for your eyes as you share with Alice the wonderful things she sees, the wonderful friends she meets. Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the walrus and the carpenter, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, the Cheshire Cat, the White Rabbit, and many more. I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. No time to say hello. Goodbye. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. A very merry birthday to me. To you. A very merry birthday for me. For you. Little bird of butterflies, kiss the tulips, and the sun is like a toy balloon. So, Alice in Wonderland. Speaking of Victorian oddities, uh, 1951 this one was, so a year after Cinderella. And uh, how does one describe this one? Um, awesome. Okay, so Sharon, yeah, let's, should we start <laughs> with Sharon? What do you like about this one? Cause it's one of I your... absolutely adore this. Um, I've, I have been trying to pin down what it is that I like about it. Um, and it, I know you said not to jump around between the films too much, but I have to make the parallel with this I one. have an excellent idea. Let's change the subject. <laughs> Sorry. My other uh, favourite of the early Disney films, um, which is 101 Dalmatians, both of them are based on um, full-length books that I adored mm-hmm. um, before I saw the Disney interpretations. Um, and both of them have a very uh, dreamlike style. And I, when I say dreamlike, I don't mean like, la, 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 once upon a dream. Um, I mean, literally, when you're asleep and things don't make any sense. Um, in Alice, it's uh, very much uh, a random, almost stream of consciousness uh, sequence of things happening and characters appearing. And there's never any attempt to explain it. Uh, and I really appreciate um sort of surrealist style art and uh, the comedy that i like tends to be quite absurdist and random and it just there's something about that this is happening and there's a logic in this moment but you can't really tie it to a logic of anything else that for some strange reason really really appeals to me mm-hmm. um with 101 dimensions it's slightly different it's more of a a, a visual dreamlike thing but I, well, i'll come to that when we talk about that film um but then there's also the fact that uh, alice is when you when you break them apart piece by piece alice is the first female Disney character mm. who actually is a person in and of herself other than um, what she represents and how she interacts with other people. She's a, she's a child for a start so she doesn't have all of these responsibilities that are kind of hooked on to the other characters. Um, she has nobody that she has to be maternal towards. Um, she has nobody that she has to be um, particularly uh, deferential to. She's quite superior in kind of a, an irritating way in that she's she's obviously um a very uh what's the word um child who knows more than they ought to know precocious precocious yes thank you she's a very precocious child um she actually reminds me a little bit of lisa simpson mm. oh, um, yeah. she's uh although she's kind of she doesn't like the books 
her introductory scene is she's she's learning academic stuff which girls previous to that weren't really shown as having anything to do with she's not domestic in the slightest she has this incredibly vivid imagination that takes her to a million and one places that we've never seen before purple trees and queens made out of playing cards a lot of internal conflict especially if you consider that everything she's experiencing is her own dream yeah Um, and she's a smart ass she was a little blonde girl and she was a smart ass and frankly that was me at that age so (laughs) i loved alice i thought she was fab cats and rabbits would reside in fancy little houses and be dressed in shoes and hats and trousers in a world of my own all the flowers would have very extra special powers they would sit and talk to me for hours when i'm lonely of my own There'd be new birds Lots of nice and friendly howdy-do birds Everyone would have a dozen bluebirds Within that world of my own I could listen to a babbling brook And hear a song that I could understand keep wishing it could be that way because my world would be a wonderland Dan? There's something about watching this that makes me feel the same way as when I'm watching Adventure Time mm, mm. There's, something yes. about, there's something in my brain that gets always a little bit stressed out watching Adventure Time and I think it is just the absurdity of it like my brain's trying really hard to keep up and I feel the same thing watching this, but that kind of feels appropriate to the story too, because Alice is supposed to start slowly getting overwhelmed by it. It's like mm. the whole point is that, all right, you can, one can have too much nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> all these crazy sequences back to back are really memorable and entertaining. And I love them, even though it starts stressing me out as I go. I don't know. It, the movie definitely does not ever let you get bored. It, it does not allow it. Just from sequence to sequence to sequence, there's always some new weird thing going on and entertaining in a new way, whether it's just a smart aleck caterpillar or like a bad hatter and a hare who are out of their minds and super entertaining. It's it's a really enjoyable watch. One thing we get a lot of in this film, uh, almost more than any other, uh, is the, um, the, the crazily surreal backgrounds of Mary Blair. Dan, you aware of, uh, Mary Blair? Yeah, yeah. She's uh, responsible largely for the backgrounds for this and the next feature we'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's she very did a lot stylized. Of the, yeah, she started a lot in, in the um, uh, package films. So uh, she, she, she got a lot from her trip to South America, a lot of the vivid colors that we see here and the, um, the, the way that the, uh, the, the framing of... Uh, and it's, it's almost like Alice is in a variety of multicolored cages if you watch it. There's everything sort of closed around her, and it's it's got a, a, a there's there's a freedom to the frame, but it's only within that frame, and it's almost like Alice can never venture out of that. If that makes sense, it's like she's moving from picture to picture. Mm, yeah, this is the film that feels most like a ride of any of the Disney 
film yeah. so far. It just feels like a big adventure going from interesting place to interesting place. It also feels the most to me like a video game. Hmm. Ooh. This yeah. idea that you have, here's this scene, and here's this challenge, and you have to get past this challenge in order to move on to the next one. I'm Press not... X to get frustrated and leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I feel about uh, Alice in Wonderland now. I've uh, for, for many, many years, I've been like, oh, they're never going to make a decent version of Alice in Wonderland, and especially after the 2010 version came out with its erroneous name it should be called something other than alice in wonderland or you wouldn't bring out a sequel to the wizard of oz and call it the wizard of oz um i, I hate the tim burton version i i really enjoyed reading the uh, alice's adventures in wonderland through the looking glass as a child i'm not sure what i'd make of them now that's the thing i think what we'll probably end up doing is uh, i'll read them both to lyra back to back and then we'll do a comparative of this one and uh, the the burton version and see if if there's still a film to be made here based on what happens, because, I mean, most of her Looking Glass-related stuff has never been committed to film. The books seem more severe. They've rounded the edges a lot more and made everything a bit more cuddly and a bit more uh, fun. In the books, sometimes it feels like a child's uh, interpretation of being in a, a lunatic asylum. Everybody she meets is obstinate and insane and shouts things at her that um, either don't make sense at all or are just incredibly rude. And it's, it's quite scary. Um, but the fact that Alice is able to rationalize with herself rather than freaking out gets you through the story as a child. See, a lot of that I interpreted as being um, simply a child's, a smart child's take on mm. the world, that people are trying to tell her what to do and force her in certain directions and putting yeah. obstacles in her way. And like you say, she rationalizes everything. She puts um, imagery onto it that to her makes sense. So hence why in Through the Looking Glass, everything's interpreted in sort of this chess game, because yeah. that was the last thing she was doing before she fell asleep. Yeah. Um, and I think that that dreamlike logic about it um in spite of the fact that there's also this dreamlike illogic that um uh that clash um is is part of what really draws me into this and just just makes me think anything can happen as long as it's filtered through alice's comprehension mm. and as long as that remains consistent and you believe that this is something that alice could interpret it works and one thing that actually took me by surprise, because I've never really warmed to it too much before, is Ed Wynn as the Mad Hatter. This time around, for some reason, I found him hilarious. He's awesome. His whole, the whole thing about this watch is precisely two days slow is brilliant. <laughs> the natural remedy to this to be to fill the watch with jam, butter, shove two spoons in there, mustard. Mustard? Don't let's be silly. That's and, his favorite, my favorite line of his, is yeah, that one. It's great. And um, it, possibly just because now he reminds me of the Candy King. Oh, yeah. God, yes, of course. Yeah, that's very... Have some candy. Definitely what they were kind of going for with the Candy King. Uh, but see, the Candy King didn't even become alive for me, Dan, until you sent me that Riddler tryout. And now suddenly I love <laughs> Candy King and Mad Hatter. So cheers for that one. You bet. Look, let, let's talk about that last puzzle that you cl that you just fell through. Um, it's cute and kind of admirable in some sort of way that you've done this whole takeover for grandpa thing. You, you put on the cowl like it was yours, and now you're just detectiving your little ass off this way and that all over Gotham. It's cute, it's cute. Um, here's the thing, though. 
Uh, if you And if you want to just Sherlock your way up and down Gotham, that's fine, Cupcake. You, you do what you need to do. But Sherlock, you are not currently. You're, you're doing a Magoo-level thing right now, and I am going to need you to step it up. Because that last puzzle, that was an easy one. I, I wasn't even giving you anything hard. That shouldn't have taken a day. That shouldn't have taken ha- that shouldn't have taken an hour. As I understand it, I believe uh, the actor for the Mad Hatter, like, yeah, he was recording the video reference for that whole sequence was, yeah. for the animators, and that's pretty much the best audio take they got from him when he was just ad libbing and being yeah. goofy and making stuff up. So I think for him, they're just using that ad libs yeah. kind of film studio recording. When audio. he just read it off the script, it didn't. It seemed more flat. It didn't seem, it seemed quite as uh, naturally chaotic. So what we see throughout these movies specifically is when they started doing a lot of reference-based footage and doing a lot of filming the actors, and then not so much tracing, but using them as a very close reference guide to how to animate the the characters on screen. It's performance capture. It's what we now know as performance capture and is used by so few studios in that capacity. But when it's It's used right and with Andy Serkis involved, it's – I hasten to use the M word – but uh, it's extremely special. And it had been something they'd been doing to an extent on previous films as well. Even as early as Snow White, there was a good bit of uh, uh, live action shot yeah. just for reference. And the animators didn't particularly enjoy having to work that way. But yeah. but still, yeah, it is. Uh, I would rotoscoping essentially is the the performance capture equivalent for 2D animation. Mm-hmm. And what the, the uh, animators would do is they wouldn't they wouldn't be following it or tracing it literally because then it would look floaty and terrible. It but, would look like rotoscope stuff. Consult your Ralph Bakshi with Lord of the Rings for what that would look like. Yeah, it just it looks weird and it doesn't come off looking quite right. It doesn't feel like it has weight. Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Yeah. But if you stylize it just right, if you uh, make it feel a little more right for the character, if you work on clarifying kind of the silhouette of how the character looks, then uh, it can be a very useful tool. I mean, even in 3D, if we're not shooting motion capture a lot of the time, we'll still probably film ourselves doing something just so we can see the yeah. body mechanics of what's actually going on for an action. So, uh, it, and having actual actors doing that for you can be quite useful and give you a lot of really cool ideas. So, well, it does make a lovely kind of sense because if you, I suppose, if you're animating something that is supposed to be extremely stylized, that's the point when you can really draw it out of your own head because it's it's what your imagination is is creating for you, and you need to be able to replicate that as closely as possible. Mm. But if you're trying to do something where the movement looks like real movement and the fabric flow looks like real fabric flow, you need something to work off um, because otherwise you're having to remember all of that, and it's. It, it's not something that you can necessarily recreate accurately purely from your own brain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the fact is, miss, we planted the white roses by mistake. And the queen, she likes some bread. If she's so white instead, she'd raise a fuss. And each of us would quickly lose his head. Goodness. Since this is a thought we dread, we painted the roses red. Let me help you. Painting the roses red. We're painting the roses red. Don't tell the queen what you have seen or say. That's what we said. But we're painting the roses red. Yes, painting the roses red. Not pink, not green, not aquamarine. We're painting the roses red. 
Despite all the long years of thought and effort, the film met with a lukewarm response at the box office and was a sharp disappointment in its initial release, earning an estimated 2.4 million at the US box office in 1951. It cost 3 million. So how did this advance Disney? It didn't. It actually set them back some way, especially since this followed their triumph of Cinderella. It was like, ah, we can still make mistakes at this point. Um, It may have wrong-footed them to a degree because uh, it took them a while to come back from this. See how the trouble you've started? Really, I didn't think that. Ah, but that's the point. If you don't think, you shouldn't talk. Clean cup, clean cup. Move down, move down, move down. Then I still haven't yet. Move down, move down, move down, move down. And now, my dear, as you were saying... Oh, yes. I was sitting on the riverbank with, uh, with you-know-who. I do? (laughs) I mean my C-A-T. Tea? Just half a cup if you don't mind. Come, come, my dear. <laughs> don't you care for tea? Why, yes, I'm very fond of tea. But... If you don't care for tea, you could at least make polite conversation. Well, I've been trying to ask you. I have an excellent idea. Let's change the subject. <laughs> Why is a raven like a writing desk? Riddles? Let me see now. Why is a raven like a writing desk? I beg your pardon. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Why is a what? Devil. She's stark raven mad. But, but it's your silly riddle. You just said... Sally, don't get excited. How about a nice cup of tea? Have a cup of tea, indeed. Well, I'm sorry, but I just haven't the time. The time. The time. Who's got the time? No, 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 no. No time, no time, no time. Hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late. The White Rabbit. Oh, I'm so late. I'm so very, very late. Well, no wonder you're late. Why, this clock is exactly two days slow. Two days slow? Of course you're late. <laughs> My goodness. We'll have to look into this. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. I see what's wrong with it. Why, this watch is full of wheels. Oh, my poor watch. Oh, my wheels. The springs. But, 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 but. Butter, of course, it needs some butter. 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 Butter? Butter, oh, thank you, butter. Yes, that's fine. Oh, no, 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 you'll get crumbs in it. Oh, this is the very best butter. What are you talking about? Tea? Tea? Oh, I never thought of tea, of course. No. Tea. No, not tea. Sugar? Sugar, two spoons. Just two spoons, thank you, yes. Please, be careful. Jam? Jam, I forgot all about no, jam. No, Just show tea. you what a place to do. Mustard? Mustard, yes, but mustard? Don't let's be silly. Lemon, that's different. There. That should do it. <laughs> Look at that! Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Bad ones. Bad ones. Bad ones. Bad ones. Bad ones. Bad ones. Now, following that show, we both read Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, which I personally prefer of the two, to Lyra. They're quite patchy to read through in this day and age, and Alice is actually pretty dislikable in the first one. But it was, again, quite remarkable how much of the two Disney's animated version packed in. 
and even in many cases improved on in terms of memorable gags and delivery. In particular, Catherine Beaumont as Alice makes the otherwise clueless, pretentious and scatterbrained girl distinctly more charming than as written. I still wish someone would just go ahead and do a straight film of Through the Looking Glass that would really stick in the mind of the general public, unlike that wretched, wobbly CGI bumfest that Tim Burton dribbled out a few years ago. Henry Selleck, director of Coraline and James and the Giant Peach, with his stop-motion colleagues at Leica, seemed like the ideal choice. Anyway, next week we'll take a break from Disney for a bit with a special treat, and then Peter Pan, which we'll be combining with material on Hook and the 2003 live-action film, since neither are Disney, and this is released in timely fashion for the new Pan movie. Yeah. <laughs> 